I always think about that when I'm watching those action sequences where like the agents are taking over people's bodies and like they're running through people's houses and all of those lives are (laughs) (laughs) maybe you're like interrupting a lesbian potluck (laughs) in the suburbs (laughs) of a major city right now turning people into agents that sucks (laughs) (laughs) there are nice things happening here (laughs) oh my gosh those poor lesbians Ugh, they're never gonna get the lentils on the table Oh, forever abandoned on the stovetop. <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where we crash land on a future version of Earth where capybaras rule the planet. Instead of getting mad about the end of the human species, we just enjoy our hot tubs full of fruit. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about The Matrix, the classic sci-fi trilogy that started in 1999, ended in 2003, and has recently replicated itself into a brand new shambling cyber zombie simulacrum of itself in the form of Matrix Resurrection. (laughs) All right, let's start with the plot, (laughs) even though you probably don't really need it because almost everyone I think has seen The Matrix. I feel that almost everyone has seen it, but I can definitely say that I did not remember anything that happened in the sequels when we set out to like watch this again because I hadn't seen them since 2003. Wait, so before we do the plot, we should probably tell people about Patreon. Yes. Um, right. So, okay. Queers at the End of the World is on Patreon where you can get bonus content um, like extended universe posts and our video segment, What If My Dude? Um, This month, we're anticipating all the other possible worlds you could wake up into from The Matrix. You can unlock all our posts for the low, low price of three bucks a month, which is not even what Nat pays for coffee in New York City. And if you want to support us more, you can also get real physical art sent to you in the mail. And if you're not into Patreon, you can still support the show by reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Yeah, we love it when people do that. We read all the reviews and they make us really happy. Okay, so the plot of The Matrix. The Matrix begins in a seedy film noir style hotel in the rain where Trinity, who is clad all in shiny black leather, is searching for someone. She's interrupted by a bunch of cops and bad guys in suits, which results in a rooftop chase, much impossible jumping, and Trinity disappearing down the tubes of a payphone receiver, which I can tell you as a person who once used payphones seems like it would be really a gross experience. (laughs) We then meet hacker Thomas Anderson, who's asleep at his keyboard while his big beige box of a computer searches the net for information about Morpheus, a mysterious man in a really great trench coat. Anderson goes by the hacker name of Neo, and pretty soon his computer starts talking to him. It's Morpheus literally reaching through the screen just to say hi and tell him to follow a white rabbit, which he does. It leads him to an S&M club where Trinity's hanging out and eventually, long story short, he is captured by agents, interrogated, released, captured again by Morpheus and Trinity, offered a choice of a blue pill, which will end his nightmare of persecution, or a red pill, which will explain why he feels so alienated and disaffected all the time. So... He takes the red pill and wakes up and finds himself in a big red pot of goo, naked, sticky, and attached to the pod by lots of ports in his body and head. Oh, it just, 
I just like put it together that the, he was like the red pill and he kind of wakes up in this giant red pill shaped thing. <laughs> He's in the pill. He's in the pill. Well, the pill pod thing releases him and he is flushed out into some water and picked up by a ship where Trinity and Morpheus await wearing still stylish but less shiny clothes and they nurse him back to health and consciousness. Neo discovers upon waking that he is the one sent to free humanity from the machine AI overlords who long ago defeated their human creators and began farming them for energy to feed their endless machine empire dystopia. The world that Neo knows is a simulation called the Matrix, and it's built to keep the farmed humans asleep. And those guys in suits are called agents, and they're the programs who patrol the Matrix looking for bad elements like Neo, Trinity, Morpheus, and their gang. The leader of the agents is Agent Smith, a creepy dude with too many teeth who really, really doesn't like people because their bodies are gross. (laughs) So Neo's one job is to help the humans defeat the machines so they can grow out their pigtails, crack open their glow sticks, and party like it's 1999 in the last human city, Zion, presumably for all of eternity or until they invent strawberries and stop caring about raves. Instead, much mayhem ensues, with Cypher, who is one of the other humans, betraying Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus for a chance to return to the easier, artificial world of the Matrix and killing half the crew. Neo fights a bunch of agents, discovers that he is indeed the one, and the movie ends with a good old-fashioned Hollywood kiss and a monologue about how we all hold the choice to wake up and fight the simulation as Rage Against the Machine plays. Also, Neo can fly. After this, there are two sequels, which are mostly action scenes, and Neo and Trinity making moony eyes at each other, and Lawrence Fishburne beckoning to various programs to come and get their asses kicked by his very nice shoes. In the end, the machines attack Zion, and all hope seems lost until Neo makes a deal with the machines. He will fight Agent Smith, who's gone rogue and is breaking shit in the Matrix, in exchange for the machines leaving Zion alone. By the time the credits roll, Neo is dead, Trinity is dead, and we've come to love and lose a number of hot butches and many manly yet gentle men. Oh, and uh, and also there's a fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, you know, it does, I feel like, you know, deserves mention and we'll get some mention, especially for the, uh, the very intense sexual chemistry between the new Agent Smith and Neo, which is, is quite something. Crackling. <laughs> All right. So The Matrix is a huge deal cinematically, culturally. When when did you first see it, Nat? And like, I don't know, who were you when, when it came out, when the first one came out in 1999? So I was born in 85. So that means I would have been 14 in 1999. And I don't remember the particular time of seeing it for the first time, because I've seen the first movie so many times. It's funny because we were just saying like, it's replicated itself. And just thinking about how many times I've seen the first Matrix and thought about the Matrix and interacted with it in various ways through popular culture. It feels like this thing that's just tessellated throughout my teenage life, I think. Mm, mm. What I do remember very distinctly is how often people my age said there is no spoon. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) totally. It was just this this thing that felt so profound to people at the time, I think. And I, I just remember like being like, 
God, you know, this is a little uncreative. Like, can you figure out something else to say? It's <laughs> so funny. I totally didn't understand that scene when I saw it. <laughs> that went completely over my head. I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, he's a superhero and he bends the spoon with his mind. Right, right. <laughs> what are you that talking about? And then yeah. I saw it again and I was like, oh, because the Matrix. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, it's a very platitudinal movie. Like, Mm. they just have all these vague statements in that movie that can really kind of mean anything. And what even is The Matrix really? Because later in the series, it turns out that Neo has powers in the quote unquote real world. Mm -hmm. So I I wouldn't blame your 16-year-old self for being a little confused. I was almost certainly just either eating popcorn or being like, oh, is my buddy making out with that other dude next to me <laughs> in the theater? Because I was 16 and that's what we did in movie theaters. But oh my God. <laughs> that was a whole. They probably just got distracted by something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can remember speaking of my own like completely dorky teenage self being so into the song that plays at the end of the first movie, which is Calm Like a Bomb by yeah. Rage Against the Machine. I was like, I want to get into Rage Against the Machine now. But then like listening to that album, I was like, I'm not getting that feeling. Like this is more complicated than I thought. (laughs) So much more complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be hard to say anything that hasn't been said a lot about The Matrix. But I also... I also feel like the one of the major tensions of the legacy of The Matrix probably for the Wachowskis as much as anybody is like that tension between the matrix as a vehicle for pleasure and the matrix as like a vehicle for delivering this revolutionary message. Cause in neither case did it really go, I think the way that they had hoped it would. Yeah. I was thinking about this in rewatching all of these and you can only do so much if you're going to add in action and the pleasure of masculine wish fulfillment, which to me feels like so much a part of what I love about the Matrix, honestly. Not that that's very philosophically deep, but if you're going to put in those things, you're subtracting effort from the other cause and vice versa. And I think it's really interesting how that tracks through the four movies, where sometimes it feels remarkably successful in pushing a radical agenda. And then at other times, you're just like, you know, in The Matrix Reloaded, you have this endless action scene where there's a car chase. And it's just like... It's better at least than the one where Neo's just fighting 80 trillion Smiths for 10 solid minutes. That is also very, very (laughs) tiresome. Like... (laughs) Right. What is the collective noun of Agent Smith's? <laughs> an enunciation. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so Neo is fighting an enunciation of Agent Smith's. And Seriously. <laughs> oh, that's perfect on so many levels. Thank you. Thank you. It gets at both the diction and the Christian imagery that the movies are rife with. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Seriously. Thank you. That's perfect. I don't know. Like, do you remember how you felt the first time you saw the scene of Neo waking up in that gelatinous bowl of goo inside the the machine power generating station? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think my first reaction was just like, oh my gosh, like this is so silly. Hmm. And I remember thinking in the first movie that the real world outside of the Matrix seemed like it was 
intentionally being painted with the broadest of brushes. Hmm. Like, it was supposed to be this kind of dreamlike idea of what is outside the Matrix. But what was more important was how you relate with the Matrix once you know that there is another way of being. Mm. And the relationship between the two worlds is like, the Matrix is comfortable and, well, I guess comfortable because it depends on how close the Matrix is to the reality that we actually live in, where reality in our world is not very comfortable for a lot of people. But supposedly, some of the way they set up the dichotomy in the movies is like, right. the Matrix is nice because you can have steak and wine in there. Right, yeah. And- we don't spend a lot of time with people who are uncomfortable in the 1999 of the Matrix. Gosh. Well, I, you wonder, like, they don't really get into that. But they do show unhoused people in the movies. Yeah, but, but mainly as counterpoints and props, not really as, as like, people with... Oh, no, no, I know. Yeah. I... I What I meant to say was, like, did they imagine that the Matrix was created where everybody's middle class or something like that? Right. Yeah. Like, are the, like, is everybody who's not middle class a program? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) It makes me think about, like, how in that scene when Neo is kind of pooped out of the machine city and wakes up in the slimy waters of the real and he gets, like, pulled onto the ship and he just gets, like, cared for so carefully, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they, like use these needles to make him have muscles again. He's just like unconscious and he's being attended to. And it's a rebirth in the sense of of both like <laughs> coming out of this shoot, screaming and wet into, <laughs> into a different reality. But it's also a rebirth in the terms of like, he's like a baby who's, who's cared for by mm-hmm. all these people. And it makes me think about like, there's a certain wish fulfillment in that in terms of the desire to be safe and to be cared for. But there's also, I don't know, just like, what if you had never had that, like in in the Matrix reality? Mm-hmm. And that's not something that the movies go into at all. But like, you can imagine that, <laughs> like waking up with a crew of people who you can work with and who care about you and who like intimately care for your body could be a lot better <laughs> than a lot of people experience if it's really our world in 1999. Right. So one of the things that struck me watching the first movie this time, kind of especially after seeing the fourth one, but also just sort of generally in the moment of, you know, end of 21, beginning of 22, like watching that movie again, is just noticing how much the original movie takes for granted, I think, in the audience a sense that it is better for things to be real and true, even if they're hard. Right. You know, when Morpheus welcomes Neo to the desert of the real, he sees himself as giving Neo something valuable, like giving him a gift, which is the gift of reality. And like that, even if you're eating, you know, like whatever congealed protein a slop and you'd never get to enjoy some steaks anymore, like it's better because it's real. Like just the idea of like a simulation is in itself a fundamental violation of your human integrity and dignity. And even if it's hard, even if it hurts, the real is always better. And that's an assumption that the movie can make about watchers in 1999 that I don't think that a movie can make anymore. Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, that and also the of the time fear of AI taking over is just not a thing in the same way now. That's not to say that we're not afraid of being controlled and of machine learning and AI. But I think 
2022, we have a much more nuanced understanding of both of those things because both of those things have actually become a part of our real lives. And we don't think of a simulation controlling us. We think of internet surveillance and social media. And machine learning AI, we don't think of a machine overlord. We think of media echo chambers and recommender systems. So the metaverse that we live with today is not a place that you enter into. Mm -hmm. It's this set of behavioral cues that come out of computers and into you. Okay. Talk to me a little bit more about that relationship. So like, just to give an example, when you spend a lot of time on social media, one of the things that you think through and are present with mentally is what kinds of things that you experience in your life that can be translated into content that you could post on various different social media oh, platforms. Yes. So yeah. one example of this is visually, if you use Instagram, you start to notice certain arrangements of things in the world that would look good as a photo on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Twitter, certain interactions that you have with people are like perfect to create a viral tweet out of. Mm -hmm. And Obviously, you would perceive those interactions differently if the social media platform hadn't brought you that framing. Right. I, as someone that uses social media a lot because I've worked in social media for pay, try not to put a value judgment on that because I think it's a complicated issue rather than to simply say that's always only and ever negative. Right, right. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, which I think is the easiest position to take on that. And it's a tempting position for me because I feel negatively about it a mm. lot. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, I think, because you never see them, like, for example, try to, like, Neo never, like, accidentally tries to fly when he's, like, hanging out in Zion. Right. <laughs> and then is like, oh, yeah, I can't do that, which is totally right. something that would happen. You know, yeah. like, like, if that were, you know, given given our experiences with kind of living both in these internet constructed realities and the real world like yeah you start thinking about what would be a good picture on instagram you start relating to the sunset as a shareable piece of content <laughs> right <laughs> you know and that's not something that happens in the matrix movies i think just because they didn't know yet you know yeah no they didn't know i mean i think it can be hard from this vantage to remember what the early internet was like i often have a really hard time talking to folks who grew up in this version of the internet about that like i think there was more of a sense and you know and this is something that's kind of played out in the hacker figure as as they're represented in the matrix it's like this idea of people who are who don't have power could go into this space and have power there and they could be, you know, you can be like a nobody, you can be somebody who lives in your mom's basement, surrounded by a nest of congealed coffee cups and burnt out cigarettes, like Neo is when he wakes up in, you know, like, <laughs> in his like Reddit nest in, in the beginning of the first movie. But you can do stuff that really matters in the internet. And I think that there is Part of that, like, can accord with this sort of myth of masculine efficacy. That is one one way that has been interpreted. But it can also align with some of the ethics of disruption, I think, that were going on in activism at the end of the 90s. Like, mm -hmm. you know, that, that continue to be effective today, like blocking roads and, you know, and disabling, like, 
heavy equipment that's being used to, (laughs) for example, build a pipeline. Oh, yeah. And I mean, in that era of digital culture, internet and computer use, there was a lot of really radical politics in the way people were making and distributing software as well. I mean, the open source movement was huge. And I mean, it was a really exciting time on the internet because people were out there making things and sharing things with each other. Yeah. And that's not just, you know, these bad actors who are out there like co-opting media narratives. It was people who are exploring what computers could do and openly sharing untold hours of work in developing yeah. programs with anyone. Yeah. For and, the joy I of mean, sharing. Yeah. The joy of sharing and also for political reasons. Yeah. Like this idea that you cannot own code is absolutely central to that whole world. And I mean, that's Unix and Linux and the whole world of open source software was major. And it comes from those same values. It really does. And I think back before people had learned how to control this kind of sharing on the internet, I mean, you could be, you know, I was not by any means like, particularly computer literate. My my parents refused to buy a computer for us until I was like well into high school. So I didn't get to learn until later than a lot of my friends. But like, even I could download music, movies, anything I wanted for free and have conversations with people. Like there were just so many ways to connect and properties that otherwise you would have to pay for, <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know. And it, and it did feel radical. It didn't feel like you know, I, I think it's been reframed as like pirating or stealing or like grubby in some way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but it it wasn't that. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't what, what Spotify does <laughs> no. in terms of like refusing to pay people. Like there right. was, you, people still bought CDs and went to concerts. It's just like, if you want to hear a song, you can go out of your way to get it. Yes, exactly. You know, this is just you talking about this is actually helping me understand a little bit more about I think the differences in my perception of the first movie versus the second two, Mm. which is that in the first movie, there is really this strong connection with this idea of, you know, an isolated computer user Mm -hmm. on the internet, reaching out and trying to find a connection with a way of understanding, you know, his situation and why he feels trapped in this unreality Mm-hmm. And using the world of the internet as a means to try to transcend or escape that. Mm-hmm. And then that leads into this metaphorized idea of being in a virtual world and hacking as being awesome at Kung Fu, which mm-hmm. is like literally the most satisfying like fulfillment of a f- like many similar kinds of fantasies that I had, mm-hmm. which we all know that like I manifested on the computer. like in a lot of ways yeah (laughs) i love that mythology of this like search for meaning this search for connection there's this trope of like men searching for other men on the internet through one great hacker seeking another wanting to meet up in real life you know encounter that other man's body and see what it's like and there's just so much about that that feels really charged for me Mm -hmm. and then the sequels are so focused on cishet love Mm -hmm. and and trinity yes and that's just like to me it lost all of its connection with these other resonances and went into this like tropey love story of 
like, I'll be there for you no matter what. And then we had right. to like have this incredibly awkward experience of watching them have sex during this <laughs> I know. It's so awkward. It's so true. <laughs> okay, but talk to me about this because I want to understand more. Why is that so awkward? There's something really sad about them missing that party. <laughs> I agree with that so hard. What a bummer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a justification for why, but. Yeah. By removing Neo and Trinity from that group, like it reinforces their like specialness and their oneness, you know, like the mm-hmm. oneness, not. And it also, if you're watching the movie like I was as a teenager and being like, okay, okay, I know that we have to say that they're in love because this is a Hollywood movie. But I also know, wink, wink that we're all on the same page about the fact that Trinity and Neo are totally queer and they are one single queer person. When I was a teenager, it was like, they're both girls. And now I'm like, they are one trans person. You know, like, let's not double down on on this idea of romantic love, which is obvious bullshit. See, I feel like that's so interesting because I feel like I have like the parallel experience to that, but it's like gender flipped. Mm. Because for me in the movie, I obviously identified with him. Like, I was like, I'm him. I really want that trench coat. Like, I I legitimately feel like some of the aesthetic things that I like still come from The Matrix, Mm -hmm. but specifically him. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like Trinity was a guy Mm -hmm. because she's just got this butch energy that's so awesome. Super hot butch energy. But then in that moment, it's just like reinforced that it's like, Oh, no, she's a woman. Like he's on top. (laughs) And you're just like, ah, no, like you're ruining like this feeling of masculinity I had from their relationship. Hmm. And she kind of ends up in this caretaking role. Yeah. Like initially when he comes out of the Matrix, she has curiosity. She's competent. Yeah. And then she ends up being his subordinate. And like, like, it's like there's that moment in the first one where she's like, I'm your commanding officer. You're going to do what I fucking say. That's so hot. And then in in the next two movies, like it's like, because he's now the one and there he has all these acolytes, like he's sort of the decider and she's sort of his his secondary. Yeah, and she gets kind of like mom hair. I mean, whatever. Like <laughs> I sh- I shouldn't say that because like much respect to all parents of children out there. Yeah. Like for sure. She just gets kind of like a, a suburban, she like does. chin length. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrie Ann Moss really embodies at once, like, gay-as-fuck catsuit energy and, Mm -hmm. like, absolute minivan feels. (laughs) Well, that's even a little bit brought in in the fourth movie, like... Right. It's it's amazing to me. Yeah, like... And she's all, like, really Tiffany, and we're all like, yeah, Tiffany, duh. But, like, it's so funny. We keep talking about these different angles to kind of come at the original three Mm. and then every time we like talk about something i'm like oh yeah like there was a thing about that in the fourth movie Mm. like it's just interesting as a cultural artifact that the fourth one ended up being so self-referential it was like in a way they just like went through all of the things people like us who talk about on these kinds of shows have Mm -hmm. said Mm -hmm. and they were like 
somewhere that's going to manifest in the plot and right. in the way we shoot it. Like, Which just feels like them being like, ha look at all you silly assholes. <laughs> like, it is. Partly because I think, I think the movie has kind of a, a negative take on fandom as like mm-hmm. a sort of pointless exercise of nostalgia and navel gazing that is mostly in service of the Matrix, like mostly in service of complacency and control. And it's a cool thing, but I think it's really hard to have a conversation about the the matrix that doesn't feel circular. Partly I think you know so much because it is a circular narrative. Like right. Right. Like I feel like there should be some way to kind of like make a crack in it by like thinking about this idea of escape like what does the matrix have to say about getting out? Mm-hmm. What are you getting out of and what are you getting into, <laughs> you know, when you get out in that world? Yeah, I mean, just with you saying it feels like it becomes circular, it kind of makes me feel like it's not invested in an idea of getting out being possible. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of about coming to terms with that and making decisions about who to be given that escape is a fantasy or a promise that reinforces binaries that are Mm. fundamentally the source of the suffering you're experiencing. Mm. So that, I mean, I'm not taking this from the fourth movie. I'm entirely taking it from my own (laughs) dubious interpretation, but (laughs) you know, if it offers any solace about any of this, it's to say that you choose how to see which reality is meaningful and how you comport yourself in whatever reality you end up in. Which I think, yeah, I think that's a really, a really helpful observation because it's like comportment, like this idea of like how you comport yourself in the world. In some ways, that's the source of power for all of these characters who are in the real world, like, you know, competent sailors of the post-apocalyptic air sea underground (laughs) right right but in the matrix are like superheroes and that's about a relationship to the rules of the world that is self-conscious and geared toward a different goal than those rules are geared toward right so like like accepting what the world is in, in the Matrix movies, it's like, how do you act within it in such a way as to not get hit by bullets? Right, right. Like, how do you act within a system that does have roles, but not always necessarily only in accordance with those roles? Mm-hmm. And then how do you relate with other actors? Yeah. Whether they're in the same system as you, whether they have the same relationship with the roles as you or a different one. What is your understanding of those those people or entities? Because, of course, many of the characters in The Matrix are programs. Right. And this might be a stretch, but, you know, you could take from it the idea that collaboration with these different entities and sources of variance in interpretation and bending and remaking of the rules is part of a way of reclaiming agency and dictating the role you play in a system in any reality. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's made me think of the J20 protests when Donald Trump was elected. I remember 
going to some trainings in preparation for like marching and demonstrating on that day, you know, one of the goals of organizers in that moment was to make sure that people understood the rules, like understood what they could and could not do and what to expect from cops. Right. In terms of just like preparing people not to panic if they were arrested, when to leave if you don't want to get arrested. It was a really, really beautiful organizing effort. It was a really moving thing. Just seeing how much effort organizers put into creating a space of consent kind of through having people understand like, okay, so the DC police department historically has been sued so many times that they now have a pretty clear script for how they need to behave in relation to protesters. So they're going to warn us three times. So if you do not want to be arrested, when you hear the warning, you should go. And if you are prepared to be arrested, and that's something that feels politically efficacious and like something you're committed to today, then you shouldn't. And then the day happened, and it completely didn't go that way. <laughs> really? No. I mean, over 200 people were were kettled and arrested and gassed and shot at with canisters. And, like, it was, it was a complete fucking Jesus. mess. As many, many protests in D.C. have been, like, things really changed. And there have been plenty of lawsuits. The more than 200 people that were arrested, the expectation that was set at those meetings was, like, this is – you're going to get booked. They're going to set your bail and then you're going to go. People were kept for days. People were charged with with inciting riots and with all kinds of, like, felony charges that – and that they then had to fight for years. It, it, it was it was a huge deal. People's lives were, were really deeply impacted by it, you know. People had to pay for those for, for lawyers and right, you know, and 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 the the state didn't win those cases, like ultimately. But anyway, long story short, I guess you know it's making me think about the ways in which that world building thing that you were kind of pointing toward and how right. it gifts. It's it's yeah. I don't know. There's like an interesting resonance there because you know organizers were like, here are the rules. We're gonna aim toward the better world we're working toward, one little piece at a time with this protest and with these demonstrations and with these actions. And, you know, here's what you need to know as a participant in order to, like, interact with these rules in a consent-based, agency-full way, (laughs) right? And the rules shift, you know? Like, like the matrix is there to hold on to power, not to value your rules. So, like, so instead of honoring, you know, what's happened up to now, they're going to throw the book at all of these protesters. They're going to kettle and tear gas journalists, they're going to do all the shit that they do, right? You know, not that there's like a direct connection to that and like some stupid scene of of Neo like kicking Smith in the face. But <laughs> but like, I guess it just makes me think about how even in the like world building that is activism, like mm-hmm. the rules don't remain consistent. Like, <laughs> you know, right. like you have to keep adjusting to what the world is. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's such an interesting connection. I mean, it obviously makes me think that just the appeal of consistent world building is this sense of safety and knowability. Mm. And in that situation, that's totally going out the window. I mean, I'm not sure if that's why I like movies that have that consistency entirely, but I'm sure that's part of it. Like Mm. the ability to kind of mentally encompass the entire narrative system and and think through to its conclusions and then be pleasantly surprised in an imaginary world where the rules come together in interesting ways it is an appeal of entertainment and then talking about the real ways that rules just suddenly go up in smoke 
it's terrifying and makes me think about the idea of media as an escape from the everyday, which Mm -hmm. is another sense of the world escape that we have touched on a little bit before. And it's complicated. It's complicated to think about the idea of escape and wanting to have that feeling of consistency and constraint as being something positive because, oh, I just want to not have to think about the complexities of the world in this like fantasy I'm having of being like a superhero cyber hacker who can like learn Kung Fu in five seconds. But I mean, I don't know. I think like there are both positives and negatives to enjoying that. You know, I think that that is exactly what Cypher's character is dealing with in the first movie. It's like, you know, you you get the sense that Cypher kind of got taken out of the matrix and thought he was going to be the action hero at the center of it all. And then when he's not, he's just like really mad. <laughs> and he wants to kind of go back to the rules and the predictability and, and the possibilities of like, you know, a more comprehensible joy, <laughs> like in stake that, you know, but it's yeah. also, it's so much of it is about jealousy for him and about like an unfulfilled right. masculine wish to like be Morpheus own Trinity, then be Neo, like that he's sort of like, well, if I can't have that, then I might as well kind of help the machine, which, which really feels like the sort of, you know, that's the Wachowskis trying to think about that relationship to the internet, which turns into these people who kind of take over the red pill idea and yeah. you know, kind of kind of subvert that idea. Yeah, it, I mean, that's an interesting moment because it destabilizes the idea that the external world of the Matrix is the the hard scrabble, simple reality of masculinity that everyone needs because you have this emblem of I guess, in a way, failed masculinity, who's like, forget it. I want to be someone important. Yeah, I want to be someone important. And I want to go back where things aren't actually simple. Yeah, I, but I want to go back to relating to them in a simple way. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. to maintain and retrieve this sort of simple relationship to power, um, where he can benefit from it without thinking about it too much, he's willing to murder all of his friends and pretty much the entire species, which kind of accords with what seems to be the priorities of the people who then end up co-opting this idea of the red pill. As in, like, if I can't be in charge and get the girls, then I'll, like, burn it all down. Yeah, I mean, what I'm thinking with Cypher is there is this interesting storytelling binary Mm. that I think is engaged by this particular character and this particular character arc which is this idea that if you can't be the main character, Mm. then you're irrelevant, you know? And that's actually commented on, you know, in the fourth one, (laughs) where a bunch of the people say all of the people on the ship with Trinity and Neo died. Right. Like, (laughs) Like being a side character was a total liability and also in the world of the story it's obviously a risk to your life and like for him i mean discovering that you're not the one is basically like discovering you don't matter which i mean Mm. i'm not exactly sure um how that connects for me with the idea of this like um red pill movement i don't know i wouldn't say i'm sympathetic with the character but i i'm also always interested when there's only like two options for kind of the role you can play in a story. And there isn't a sense of interdependence and multiple definitions of success and the kind of queer community stuff that I I really love. 
I feel like there's actually maybe some insight there around all lives matter. Um, and that, mm. that idea, which is definitely like allied conceptually with this red pill movement in that mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's got this grievance that like we would ever center any of the choices that we make as a society or as a collective on like other people besides white men. Right. So I feel like if we sort of imagine that everybody who gets freed from the matrix has this like sense of alienation and ennui, right? Like they Mm -hmm. have this feeling that something's wrong, you know? And that's something like the red pill movement really seized on. When people talk about being red pilled and they're right wingers, what they're talking about is like recognizing that like Jews or women or something control the world or whatever. But it's like that same feeling of alienation, but it's like someone like Cypher gets out and like escapes and realizes like actually there is this other set of aims that is controlling the way that his life is lived. But instead of being like, now I'm going to try and, you know, figure out a new way of relating to it. Like he's like mad that he's not the hero anymore. Right. Like he expected to like get out and fight it. But like it feels like it relates to All Lives Matter to me because what's wrong is that I'm not important anymore. Right. And then drawing some kind of connection between realizing that one is not important and that one is a tool of this power structure and then saying... And that is the fault of group X. Right, right, right. Instead of it being the fault of the power structure, it's like, he's like, well, I can't do anything about the matrix. So like, I just want to go back into it. Like, you know, I mean, I think that that is like a very true thing that we've seen in in the real way this plays out is people want to be blue pilled. Like they're talking about being red pilled, but actually what they want is for the system to like make sense in the way that they thought that it did where they were supposed to like feel important all the time so cypher's whole thing is like why is neo the one like why don't i matter why am i side character and he's like so intent on getting his sense of being central returned to him that he like will go to the machine for that well and not only that but he's very capable of externalizing his pain onto the specific people that surround him yes he addresses these litanies to the various characters who are jacked into the matrix in that scene. Like, yes, yes. You know, you are the source of my pain as opposed to recognizing this sort of grander understanding of how truly caught up in the movements and forces of power that invalidate or do not invalidate, depending on your interpretation and your understanding of these larger ideas of like fate and agency. Yeah. Um, you know, how free are you? How controlled are you? Meanwhile, Cypher's like, you know, Morpheus, you fucked up my life. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not that this whole thing happened and like, you know, human beings invented AI and then abused it. And then AI like plugged you into B batteries for its machine or whatever. It's like, no, Morpheus, (laughs) you bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. And that feels very familiar. Oh, I know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so familiar with this idea of like needing to distill complexity down into a single group or a single person to externalize blame onto. Yeah. Like that allows you the safety of righteousness. So. Absolutely. And I feel sort of supported in this reading of the scene by the fact that it's the characters of color and the trans character who die in this right. scene. Absolutely. Like, like Absolutely. poor switch man. <laughs> I know. That like moment when, when she looks at them and is like, not this way. Oh my God. It's uh, that, that hits me like right in the gut with that particular character. It's so abrupt. I don't know. I'm kind of impressed by that moment in terms of like characterization and storytelling, because we haven't, gotten to know these characters at all the whole movie has been like 
totally taken up with world building and introducing us to Neo and Trinity and all these complicated relationships and Smith and blah, blah, blah. Right. But like in a couple of lines, because we're not going to get to know them anymore. Like Mm -hmm. it sort of establishes this grief for them. And yeah, I mean, I also feel like trans masks have like a total target on their forehead in movies. Totally. (laughs) And, and so like, you know, you know, from the beginning that switch is not going to make it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's another one of those those things that I would say is when I watch movies and I have this like feeling, you know, mm-hmm. we talked about this uh last season when we talked about Mad Max where you can feel this thing happening because there's this false inevitability built into the lens of the story. Right. Um but actually I I it's weird to say that in this context because I mean, The Matrix has been interpreted as and is a trans story. And mm-hmm. that's complicated because it's not simply a movie where we can say, like, it has it in for the trans mask character because of transphobia. You know, movies, action movies in particular, make brutal things happen because that's what needs to happen for the movie to maintain momentum and impact. And so, like, I'm expecting there to be violence and scary deaths and things like that. Mm. Um, And I guess I would be, I don't know, I think I'd be a little bit more willing to chalk it up to personal bias and less to, like, some kind of squishy, unclear trans feelings that I still need to sort out about this movie if I didn't know that the original intention was to explicitly make that character be genderqueer in having one gender in the matrix and the other in the quote unquote real world. Yeah. Right. Right. And that that's the rumor that's been confirmed, which is that that character was originally supposed to be a man in the desert of the real and a woman in the matrix. Yeah. I mean, also like naming that character switch is like, sure. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's like the, like all non-binary people have blue hair and are named bugs. Like, (laughs) (laughs) which even if it's true, (laughs) (laughs) no, of course that's not true. And I just want to say to all my non-binary friends out there that you, you are all wonderful and not all of you have that name or that hair. (laughs) I don't know. Like, it makes me wonder if there was an element to it that, like, when you watch the the, the fourth one, there is all this, like, fuck you energy. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is fatalistic and frustrated and angry. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder if that moment was in part, like, coming from a place of, like, this... I'm that this might be a stretch, but like that's what we do here. I see where you're going and I like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like a sort of kill your darlings moment and Mm. just like, well, Hollywood sucks. Like, Switch just dies, you know? I mean, it makes me, it's making me think really hard about that moment because it's like Cypher says to Trinity, Do you have anything to say to Switch before she dies? In that moment, like he's like just like having a great time killing his friends and and Trinity's doesn't say anything, Mm. you know, and then switch is like not this way. It's like this moment of like, I'm taking this character away. You can't speak to them. It's a sort of like acknowledgement of loss and grief in that moment that the other characters who die don't get. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Seriously. 
ugh, you have this whole scene of let's just erase the trans character. And then these two operators on the ship are just going to be violently shot at with this laser cannon or whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. At the same time, like, I think that that's like what the movies do that is almost hardest to pin down and most interesting to me beyond all the cool action sequences. And it's something that was pointed out in this article that you pointed out to me on Vox by Emily Vanderwerf, which is that the first three movies have an incredibly unsatisfying ending because Mm -hmm. there is no escape. Like, they don't lead out of the Matrix. They lead into a different relationship with the Matrix. And it's hard to even see how that fulfills or satisfies the stated intent of the revolution in the first place, which is to free human beings from the machines. Like, that's what I understood it to be when I was a kid. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, you get a little bit of a sense that they never wanted to tell a story that led into a solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, obviously, the first movie was made, and they were not planning on making two more movies. Right. So the idea in that movie was like big action picture with some philosophical ideas. We end up with a superhero at the end. He's there in the Matrix. The Matrix still exists. You might see the superhero if you're in it. But this is just a point in this story that is fundamentally a story about the existence of the Matrix and not its end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then having to come back and make two more, they were like, okay, We created a chosen one narrative, but we don't want to give you this narrative of, like, solution and release. Mm. And at the end of the second two movies, they were like, okay, we had to make these, so we figured out a way to, like, deal with the fact that we created a superhero at the end of the first movie, which now we have to continue to escalate his story over two more movies. Mm -hmm. But at the end of these two movies, we're not going to get rid of the Matrix, and we're going to literally kill him and also his counterpart, Trinity, So that there's no possibility of ever having to, like, provide some kind of sense of resolution on this. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, can you can we get one more movie? And then like, okay, but it's going to comment on the fact that you keep trying to have this thing that you don't get to have, which is righteousness, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And comment on it in a really like in just a (laughs) like. (laughs) Just the most, like, sarcastic, ironic, like, I'm not going to play your game. Like, I am going to burn it down before I allow you to have any sincerity (laughs) with regard to this mission of making a sequel. Um, I was, I mean, that movie was very heavy-handed, but I really enjoyed that. Like, I was like, hit me over the head with that. Like, I am here for it. (laughs) I, I mean, I respect the total destruction that I feel like Lana Wachowski wreaked on the legitimacy of this mm-hmm. IP. But I but I I would not say that it was enjoyable at all. It felt I don't know. It, I it felt really ugly to me. Like Yeah. Like you can have our characters, but you have to watch them being body horror reconstructed by the machines. It winds us back into the ambivalence of like, you know, even the Matrix, even the Matrix can't escape the Matrix. Like <laughs> You know, like the matrix that is media making in Hollywood and kind of setting the parameters of what we think is a valid narrative for a life is going to come back and 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 revive, you know, these dry bones in the desert of the real and make them walk and talk again, you know, and, and, and for what? For nothing. Like nothing changes. Nothing's different. 
I feel like it's like what you were saying about um, about queerness and like multiple options because this revolutionary philosophy where folks are independent and everybody matters and we're not like working toward the goal of the machines, like it isn't actually compatible with the way that we have for telling this story of escape, like where we need the messianic figure who's going to lead us out and has this like all the power transferred to him. I mean, for so many reasons, including like he actually like in that scene, like we see that he actually has to be invincible because in any revolution that like depends on one person, then you're at the mercy of that one guy getting killed by the machines instead of, you know, like saved by Tank and his magic electro cannon. Who makes these weapons, you know? Like, <laughs> I, I have a lot of questions about who makes those weapons. And first and <coughs> foremost is why, for the love of God, you would make a giant mech suit for fighting robots that can only be killed with electricity that shoots bullets and has no guard on it. <laughs> Right. Mushy human bodies are just exposed by the front of the mech. They're just like, please come and fucking get us squid daddies. Rip us apart. Seriously. (laughs) That, I am sorry, but I have to say it. That is not realistic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) It's come to this. It has come to realism, and I am I am unsatisfied by those. In fact, the whole thing in the sequels with the way the military force in Zion operates, mm. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I mean, with the amount of people who are down in Zion, has someone at some point not been like, what will we do if they start digging down in here with a drill? <laughs> We know, for example, that many of them are drill shaped. (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly my point. Like, (laughs) perhaps we should come up with a contingency plan Mm -hmm. and work out a series of military tactics. Oh, and by the way, we have a lot of gifted computer programmers in here who can come up with scenarios that we run in this liminal zone between this Mm -hmm. world and the Matrix where people practice military tactics like Kung Fu. What if we ran a scenario where the squid daddies were drilling down into Zion and came up with a few ideas of how we would respond? Like, As opposed to just just pointing our guns at them and screaming, <laughs> which is the plan. Right. Instead of that, they were like, let's build some mechs that don't have a shell so that we're easily shot and electrocuted. We're just killed by many, many paper cuts. <laughs> <laughs> and also let's make them be loaded with uh with giant mechanical slinkies <laughs> have them carried back and forth over the bodies of the dead you know i will say though i often wonder if mechs are in part created in science fiction narratives to ultimately demonstrate the fallibility of human technology mm. tell me more because about that. So often I feel like there will be some kind of human-controlled robot suit, and the point of the narrative around that suit is the failure of it. Like, it's always like this moment where you see this whole pile of mechs and you're like, oh my gosh, look at the superiority of this military force. 
only for that army of mechs to be like crushed by whatever. Like when you see them in the Matrix, especially because they don't have like bulletproof glass on the outside, you're like, the point of this is for these like screaming militaristic men to just like die in them. Right. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. Well, that makes me think like, I feel like all of the movies have this kind of like really ambivalent relationship to like the squishiness and vulnerability of human bodies. You know, Agent Smith's whole like monologue is about like how stinky and squishy and I, I mean, I think Morpheus's body in particular, especially because so many of those scenes are like basically police kicking the shit out of Morpheus out of a black man, right? Yeah. And torturing a black man. Um, and there's that scene of like Agent Smith, like, you know, like, running his hands over Morpheus's face and like smelling his sweat and making Morpheus smell his own sweat. It's so intense. Mm -hmm. What Smith hates is the stench of decay, right? The like fallibility and, and vulnerability of human bodies. And I feel like that's also one of the more horrific things about that scene with, with Cypher when he kills everybody. It's just like, they're just, they're there and he's there, but they can't move because they're plugged into the matrix and he, like, jumps on Morpheus's body. Like, Morpheus's body, he's this, like, incredibly important person. He's an amazing fighter. He's, like, the best that there is until the one, you know. But in so many situations, his body can't fight for him. Yeah, I think there's also some dimensions there of him being sort of a father figure for mm. everyone on the ship. I mean, he's, of course, the commander, so they all look up to him and... I feel like when you see him moving his body, there's this grief of like this parent being brutalized by these kind of infallible computer warriors. And he he has he's kind of barrel chested, which like he's bigger than Keanu Reeves. And it it feels like he's his dad, you know? And it's it's upsetting to see that. Yeah. I I feel like you really get at it with his fatherliness. This is something we've talked about before. We talked about Hatchet, especially the sort of mm-hmm. vulnerability of, of fathers and their humanness is like, you know, I think especially for people who really buy toxic masculinity, like a unspeakable pain, <laughs> you know, a source <laughs> of unspeakable pain. And I think that the Matrix is interested in that from the point of view of like, there's a lot of tenderness, I think, in the way that the camera looks at Morpheus's body. Yeah, And even though he gets his ass kicked so thoroughly and is brutalized by these cops and by Cypher, I think there's something there about grieving for our own human bodies, maybe. I don't know. It's making mm. me think about think about the sort of early internet language of the meat suit. Right. Meat space. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was thinking about something like that when you – we're saying how Smith just hates the grossness and smell of human bodies because it made me think of this topic that keeps coming back up here around purity. Mm. And I think you can really see the evolution of how the whole franchise engages with this sort of dichotomy where it's like the machines have this idea of being analytical and pure and clean and humans are sweaty and dirty and they smell Mm. And, like, the evil is kind of represented as faceless, ever-respawning, programmatic entities. Mm -hmm. And then when you come into the fourth movie, 
you know, obviously all this stuff has happened in the intervening years. Now there's this transplantation of the red pill people into this idea of swarming happening yeah. in the in the matrix and you don't have the line drawn where it's like machines are artificial and pure and evil and humans are mostly like morally intact meat sacks yeah because like, they can hurl your meat at someone <laughs> you can drop them a hat <laughs> they can make you hurl your own meat <laughs> Exactly. So I, I don't know. I think that's interesting. And I think that the the fourth one made an effort to complicate that sort of simple narrative of purity, which I think was part of the hacker ethos mm. back then. But now it's, I don't know, it's, it's different now. I mean, I'm coming over to your side of the fence, I think. The more we talk about this, the more I'm like, like, I was not entertained with the fourth movie. I was not delighted. <laughs> I did not enjoy that movie, <laughs> but I do enjoy and I'm delighted by your idea that the sequel is just like an endless loop of not giving us what we want. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, in this sort of metaphor, like we are the human beings who have climbed into the mech suit of like chosen one narratives Right. And we are we are like raising our mechanical fists and aiming our guns at like our senses of, of alienation in whatever systemic thing is alienating us. Yes. And the Matrix is like, and like the mech suit doesn't have a shell and we can poke <laughs> you right through it. We're poking you this whole time. Like it's never like you are not going to get out. Like you're not going to win with your stupid mech suit of a chosen one narrative. And then we're like squeezing the trigger like <laughs> reload me reload me <laughs> I'm sure it'll help this time <laughs> seriously seriously okay I have one more question to ask you I've noticed that neither one of us has really over the course of like preparing for this episode and talking about it has really ever been like I'm so excited to talk about the matrix as a trans movie Right. I'm interested in that. Like, how do you relate to the Matrix as a trans artifact? Given that that's one of the biggest readings, I feel like that's come out of it after the Wachowski sisters came out as trans. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think of when people bring this up, and I mean, again, I haven't had an occasion to talk to people about this that much because, of course, when it first came out, and I was really engaged with the Matrix, I wasn't able to see it like that even if maybe some of those feelings were swirling around mm. beneath the surface. And like the thing that comes up in my mind when I think about it in a context of transness always takes me back to the like idea of waking up in the pod and being like, oh my God, I was living in one reality and now mm. I'm able to wake up and find myself in another reality. And the first thing I think of is I'm like, Transness is and is not like that. Right. I think. At least in my experience of it, I don't want to legislate or dictate what transness is because that would be really beside the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I, I, I feel like for me the core question generally in the franchise is is transness a process of awakening and leaving behind a previous reality? 
Or is it something else that isn't that binary where you have reality A and reality B? Yeah, you said it really, really well. I feel like we spent a lot of this conversation kind of troubling the binariness of that waking up. So there's a way in which like that, like trans experience is an experience of waking up to a different reality is already kind of troubled in in the movies themselves. I do think that there's something recognizable in, in the franchise as a whole in this sense of disorientation Mm. that for me is really prevalent. Like you can't clearly metaphorize any one thing you can get near it, but like in our trouble figuring out how Cypher is working and what his relationship is with toxic masculinity. What does waking up out of the matrix mean? Is Neo the one? Why live? You know, that's addressed. All of these things that are sort of like unstable sources of clarity of what's real and why to do what you're doing. I mean, to me, that's really evocative of that destabilizing lens that I put on things sometimes. Right. Trying to understand experiences that are dysphoric Mm -hmm. or just how it is when you unhook from gender roles and then you have to make your own decisions about how to be. Yeah, when you unhook from from normative narratives of being in general, I mean, when you unhook from from the future. <laughs> this has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts.